Hey, this is Dave Ryder from Cullamunda Church of Christ. Really praying this podcast blesses you. If you'd like to hear more of our story, how about you go to our webpage, Cullamunda.church. Good morning, Cullamunda. I don't need to say anything about who I am now, do I? Can I just start with a couple of comments? Uh, one is to the birthday girl, Jenny. Where is Jenny? Um, my heart is for mission. I spent a lot of time running backwards and forwards to Africa because uh, there's a whole heap of apt, uh, Baptist pastors in Zambia and Zimbabwe who uh, go straight from school to pastoring churches. They are lucky if they finish high school, let alone have any chance at all of formal theological education. And it's my great pleasure to go with a team of Australian guys and girls, excuse me, guys and girls, who go over there and share some of the things that we have been blessed with so that others too might hear and learn and grow some of the things. You see, a very good friend of mine says that the reason for the infilling is the overflow. The reason for the infilling is the overflow. So God's called us into this family of people, not so that we might be blessed and keep it all to ourselves. He's brought us into this place so that we might be turned outwards and go and go out into the world. My task this morning, though, is, uh, is somewhat more serious than that. Once I get all my notes sorted out here. My, uh, my topic this morning, it should appear on the screen there in a minute, is a word about truth. When I first got an email from Dave to say that uh, he was going to extend me an invitation to come up and preach on this particular day, I didn't have to think very long at all what the text was going to be or what the title was going to be. I knew straight away that it was to be a word about truth. Now, truth's a really interesting thing, isn't it? Do you remember Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? And we could have a great time chasing, that, uh, chasing the rabbit hole to see how far it goes if we approach that from a philosophical point of view. But I'm not going to do that this morning. We're going to go on a biblical path. And so as a way to start, I think it's quite possible that the most certain way to start an argument would be to begin a discussion with a friend about truth. I wonder whether it's possible to be both closer to the truth and still friends at the end of that discussion. It seems the whole world has trouble with truth, doesn't it? You see, when I was much younger, one of my uncles, an uncle who uh, sadly passed away at the end of last year, one of my uncles said to me, Mick, you should stop telling lies because your memory is not good enough. <laughs> I'm still trying to work out whether he was actually speaking a word of rebuke or a word of encouragement or maybe both. And politicians too seem to have difficulty with the truth, don't they? Do you remember the presidential candidate who misspoke? What on earth 
is misspoke. Did I dare to speak of something that I knew nothing about, only to speak in error? Or did I speak falsehood, knowing it to be false, but speaking it anyway? And how many of you know that a little bit of knowledge is dangerous? The following is a story from the pen of Klein Snodgrass. It's a book of illustrations. He tells this little story that illustrates the point perfectly. Once, the devil was walking along with one of his cohorts. He saw a man ahead stop, bend down and pick up something shiny. What did he find? asked the cohort. A piece of the truth, the devil replied. Doesn't it bother you that he found a piece of the truth? asked the cohort. No, said the devil. I will see to it that he makes a religion out of it. We're going to be talking about some of those things today, some of those temptations. So this morning's sermon is a word about truth. And may the Lord speak to us by his spirit and bring clarity about this essential part of our faith. For those of you who have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to open them up. We're going to John chapter 8. But as always, there is a backstory to this text, and the backstory is really important. We're going to be speaking, I'm going to be speaking from just four verses. It's going to be four verses and four slides. But we're really going to have to look at two whole chapters to see where these four verses fit. You see, at the start of John chapter 7, Jesus is actually going to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. He's attending that particular feast and midway through the festival, Jesus starts teaching. And as soon as he does that, there's problems, there's trouble. And so for the whole of chapter 7, there's a series of disputes that centre around primarily two things. The first is the authority with which Jesus speaks, and the second is the question of the identity of Jesus. Who is this man? What's he doing here? What's he saying? Where has he come from? In whose name does he speak? And then there's a wonderful little story that's been inserted somewhere in the pages of history, right at the end of chapter 7 and the very first start of chapter 8, there's a story about a woman taken in adultery. If you have a look at your scriptures, you'll see that that little story doesn't actually belong there. It belongs somewhere else. Uh, This story floated around in church history for a number of years and eventually it came to rest at this point. But if you have a look at the the verses that go either side of that, you'll see that there's one continuous story there. So as we come past that into chapter 8, we run straight back into a series of disputes again between Jesus and the religious authorities. The text that I want to share with you this morning comes from John chapter 8, verses 31 and 33. Let me read those verses to you. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, 
you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we will be set free? Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So there are just four verses and four slides, but there's one big idea that sits behind these four verses. And the first of those ideas is that you should know me. You see, right in the very first instance of that, uh, that verse, verse 31, we read about a group of people called the Jews. And we must be really careful here because in John's Gospel, that term doesn't function as an ethnic description. Jesus is not referring to the people of Jewish descent. No, John is using this term, the Jews, as a pejorative term for the religious leaders of Judaism, those authorities who stood opposed to Jesus. It's John's way of letting us know who the bad guys are. It's his way of identifying the religious legalists who, in the words of Jesus, load people down with burdens that they can hardly carry and they will not lift a finger to help them. You see, exposing the hypocrisy of the religious leaders was just one of the ways that Jesus set about deliberately recentering the conversation. That is, he repeatedly pointed to the grace and the mercy of the one who gave the law rather than pointing to the law itself. In this way, Jesus took every available opportunity to call people to keep the main thing as the main thing. To keep the main thing the main thing. The problem was, by doing that, Jesus threatened the delicate balance of power. Perhaps we might observe that things haven't changed much in the 2,000 years that have passed since, have they? It seems that the ones with the most to lose are the ones who make the most noise when things change. That's the red words. John is the narrator. Sorry, that's the black words. John is the narrator. If you've got a red-letter version of the Bible, you'll find that we're about to hit some red words. This is when Jesus is speaking. The first thing that he says is, if you. See, Jesus is beginning here with a conditional statement. He's about to say, if something, then something. And the if something is, if you hold to my teaching. Now, there are two ways in which we can understand what he means by holding to my teaching. In the immediate section that's just gone, Jesus claimed that it's only when you have lifted up the Son of Man that you will grasp the fact 
that I am speaking the truth about myself, about my father and about my mission. In that sense then, if you hold to my teaching would mean that accepting that Jesus is who Jesus says he is. And apparently, some of those who were listening to him had heard that and had received it. Because in verse 30, it says, As he spoke, many believed in him. And the few verses before us this morning also include the observation that Jesus was speaking to the Jews who believed him. So something had gone on. They had heard something and they had come to that point of belief. That's the first way we can understand that. The second way we can understand, hold to my teaching, is to consider it as the meaning of the sum of everything that Jesus taught, especially those things that he taught in the series of disputes in John chapter 7 and 8 that we've just talked about. Both options amount to the same thing, however. For anyone to hold to my teaching requires a response. Not only do we have to hear it, we have to do something with it. And in John's gospel, Jesus' followers are those who believe in the one who was sent. That Jesus' followers are those who believe in the one that God the Father had sent. Not only do they hold to his disciples, but sorry, not only do they hold to his teaching, but if they hold to his teaching, then you are really my disciples. According to Jesus, true disciples are those who are faithful and obedient to his teaching. Real disciples, therefore, are those who heard, those who believed, those who obeyed, and those who followed Jesus. They are the ones who were in for the long haul. Unlike the many pretend disciples, those ones who fall away as soon as the going gets tough. You see, they are the ones who turn back and no longer follow. You might say, it's all very well for the disciples and the first generations of believers, but what does that look like in our lives? It seems to me, as I said before, that nothing much has changed. If we are to be genuine followers of Jesus, then surely all of our thoughts, all of our words and all of our deeds will be a public demonstration that we believe Jesus is the one sent by God. You see, the whole point is to know Jesus. Not know about Jesus, but to know Jesus. And that is what he's saying right here at this moment. And it's here for everyone who has ears to hear. He's saying something like this. If you know me, you will know the Father because the Son only ever speaks and acts according to what the Father has sent him to say and to do. As we come to the second verse, we see now that we're talking about knowing, we've known Jesus, now we're called to know the truth. And the title of this message, A Word About Truth, was chosen as a way to speak about truth. More importantly, it gave me the opportunity to point 
to the truth. What Jesus says is in verse 32, then you will know the truth. In the previous verse, what we saw was that Jesus told those who were listening to him that the ones who hold to his teaching, they are the real disciples. In this verse, what we read is he extends the point by adding, as my disciples hold to my teaching, they will know the truth. Now, there's no doubt at all that all those who were present were waiting with bated breath to hear the truth. You see, they were expecting some detailed information or some fancy new idea that would open up a whole vista of understanding about concepts that were previously hidden from them. But Jesus didn't do that. What he did was he spoke plainly. He said, then you will know the truth. What he had to say was new and radical and surprising, but it was not beyond the grasp of anyone who was listening to him. He said, the truth is not a body of knowledge. It's not a set of fancy ideas. It's not facts and figures about things you have not yet heard. No, the truth is I am the truth. I am the truth. If you only knew who it was that's standing here before you. You see, the truth is a person. The truth is Jesus Christ. The truth is he is the son who has been sent by the Father. Do you see that? Do you get that? Knowing the truth, therefore, is a personal relational event where, by faith, we come to know the true identity of Jesus as we experience the love of God in him and the love of God through him. The really astounding thing, though, is that in him, the objective and the subjective aspects of knowing come together. What does that mean? It means that the things we know about Jesus and the way that we know Jesus occur within the person of Jesus and how we relate to him, how we experience him. Jesus is God's word in the flesh. flesh. Jesus is God's word in the flesh. He is God who has come to us. He is God for us and he is God with us. Now this truth this truth, this is the one who will set you free. And there's much more to come. Jesus is not, Jesus not only reveals the truth about himself, but he reveals the truth about us. He shows us that he's found us in the middle of our rebellion. He found us in the place where we've asserted our independence and our autonomy from God. You see, we have all chosen to go our own way. In Paul's terms, we're the enemies of God. We were the enemies of God. You see, we were all so busy ignoring God and ignoring his call and ignoring his purposes, we were running away as fast as our legs would carry us. 
That happened for me a number of years ago in Esperance. When Bill said to me one day, our pastor Bill said, um, you better enjoy your time as a farmer because you're not going to be doing it for very much longer. I ignored that for a long time. Why? Because I was having a great time as a farmer. We were working hard. Pam and I were both working really, really hard. We both worked jobs off our farm because that was in the years when we had the world's greatest treasurer and the um, interest rates went way north. So we were working hard to pay this huge debt that we had. But we had a fantastic lifestyle. And we had a fantastic church family. And we had a fantastic set of people who were our adopted Western Australian family. See, because Pam and I both come from South Australia. In fact, I like to say that we escaped from the convicts and came and joined the free settlers <laughs> in the West. Only trouble is someone pointed out that Adelaide, South Australia, was the only state without a penal settlement. So there you go. Someone comes along and wrecks a good story, don't they? That's where God finds us. God finds us in that place. What happened was he just wouldn't let me go. He just wouldn't leave me alone. And finally, I was brought to the point where I had to make a deal. Either you speak to me clearly, completely, unambiguously, in a way that I cannot possibly misunderstand, or let me go and enjoy my life. I was at a conference here in Perth, and um, I'd been sitting there listening to this international speaker for about three quarters of an hour. I was sitting way up the back where you sit when you want to hide. I was sitting up there. And I heard the Lord say to me, I don't know whether the man on the stage said this or not, but I heard the Lord say to me, get up off your bum and go and do it. I thought, okay, I've got it. And from that point, uh, Pam and I set about arranging to come to Perth so, so that I could study for ministry. When we come to know the person of Jesus Christ, what we do is we see the truth about him and we see the truth about ourselves. In fact, a very good friend of mine, uh, one of my theology lecturers, has this habit of saying the definition of a repentance is when we're brought to the place that we know everything that we have said about God is wrong and everything that he has said about us is right. Is that not true? Is that? Hands up, those of you who have experienced that. It comes as a shock, doesn't it? When we realise that our hearts really are deceitful. Our hearts really do lead us astray. Jesus shows us the truth about ourselves. And through revelation, though, we know that he is the gift of God given to the world so that everything could be brought back into right order. He's the gift of God given to the world so that we might be saved from the consequences of sin and restored into right relationship with God the Father through the Son, in and by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus means when he says... The son, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. 
If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, we need to be careful right there because there's a temptation right there. Remember what I said about our hearts being deceitful? There's temptation right there. We need to be careful because Jesus has not set us free to do whatever we please. Jesus has set us free to bring glory to God the Father. How do we go about bringing glory to God the Father? We do that by hearing, believing and obeying Jesus. That is, holding to my teaching. We do that by following Jesus. Are you following or are you still running away? You see, your life and my life shows whether or not we know the person who is the truth. And right at this moment comes the objection. There's an objection from the Jews who challenged Jesus about the promise to set free those who come into a saving relationship with him by holding to his teaching. The Jews say, they raise an objection about whether or not they are actually slaves. So the question here is whether we are a slave still or whether we have been set free. We said earlier that the Jews were the religious authorities who opposed Jesus at every opportunity that they had. The primary reason for their opposition, of course, was the way that they viewed their religious heritage. They made much of the inheritance of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant and the receipt of the law of Moses. Neither of these things were wrong in and of themselves because they both came as they both came to the people of God as gifts from God those gifts though became problems as soon as the people began to focus all of their attention on the gift and they forgot about the giver of the gift now, we wouldn't fall into that same mistake today, would we? We would never do something like that. The religious authorities said, we are Abraham's descendants. And when they said that, they were both right and they were wrong. Yes, God did speak to Abraham. God did establish a covenant with Abraham, one that contained two quite specific promises, the inheritance of people and the inheritance of land. Now, on face value, the objection raised by Jesus' opponents seems straightforward. You see, their genealogical records show that they were from the line of Abraham. But at the same time, they were wrong. They were wrong because they failed to grasp the fact that the assurance of inheritance is something that comes from the Lord not from Abraham. They'd forgotten that Abraham had received blessing from the hand of the Lord. Therefore, Abraham's descendants were also to receive blessing from the hand of the Lord. The problem was that they were looking in the wrong place and they were focused on the wrong things. Instead of resting upon religious pride and religious privilege, they should have looked to the promise keeper 
sorry, the promise giver. They should have looked to the promise giver, the one who speaks. They should have looked to the covenant maker, the one who is faithful. And they should have looked to the promise keeper, the one who is trustworthy. They said that we are never been slaves of anyone. The claim of the Jews that they'd never been slaves was wrong on multiple counts. It appears that they were suffering from memory loss. You see, the people of God had been slaves in Egypt. And God had to send Moses and Aaron to free them from Egypt. The ten tribes of the northern kingdom in the early 8th century were invaded by the Assyrians and the people there were taken into exile in Assyria. And then in the 6th century, the people of the southern kingdom suffered attack from King Nebuchadnezzar. They too were taken into exile, into, in, but into a different place, into Babylon. And Jesus' opponents had also overlooked the very small point that Alexander the Great had conquered the Holy Land. And right at this very moment when they're having the conversation, the Roman Empire said how things were going to happen in the Holy Land. So how can you say that we're going to be set free? Finally, the religious authorities start to get the point that they had never been slaves of anyone. On the surface, on the surface it does seem that it's a rather pointless exercise to attempt to free those people who have not lost their liberty. Only trouble is, they had. Unfortunately, those who were objecting had misunderstood the point. They'd missed the point. Jesus was not talking about the subjugation of God's people under foreign rule. He was talking about a far more dangerous and a far more insidious enemy. He was talking about an enemy who hides in the darkness. He was talking about an enemy who comes to steal, to kill and to destroy. He was talking about the power of temptation and the weakness of fallen human nature. He was talking about the destructive behaviours that fracture relationships and threaten to destroy our families and our communities. He was talking about sin. We started out this morning when I said that I wanted to bring you a word about truth. We found that Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching by hearing, believing, obeying and following me, you are my disciples. And we heard that he went on to say that he is the truth. He is the one who sets his people free. He was saying, of course, that the truth is not some abstract concept. It's not something that is comprehended cognitively. It does not something that resides in your head, something that happens in your heart. What he meant was that he in his very person is the truth of God given to the world so the world might know God and might receive the freedom which God desires for all of those who are his. It's just one small problem. And that small problem is the problem of slavery. Yes, Jesus was talking to the Jews, 
But through the pen of John and through the providence of the Lord, Jesus is speaking to you and me. He's speaking directly to us right now. And he is saying, very truly I tell you, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. You see, Jesus came into the world to deal with the problem of sin fully and finally. He came to set us free from the power and the consequences of sin. He frees us from the consequences of our own sin and from the sin of others. He came that you and I may have life and have it in extravagant abundance. Is that not true? He also came for everyone who hears this message that peace is now possible with God through Jesus Christ. That's true even for the Jews, the opponents of Jesus. As the music team comes back to the platform, can I please share with you these final few thoughts? Jesus is God's truth given that we might know God. Jesus has been given that we might love God. Jesus has given, Jesus is given that you and I might follow in the ways that God has ordained for each of us. As such, Jesus must be the centre of everything that we do as individuals and everything that we do as a community of believers who gather in his name. The people in Africa say, Amen belongs here. As such, Jesus must be the centre of all that we do as individuals and as a community of believers who gather in his name. Amen? Therefore, please allow me just to offer these few final words as a word of encouragement for Kalamunda Church of Christ. Keep Jesus at the centre of everything you do. Never give up the centre. Jealously guard it and protect it. Resist the temptation to run after something new, something more interesting or something more relevant. Remember, the extent to which Jesus is afforded the center ground of your thinking, of your programs, and of your practice of the faith is the extent to which it is truly Christian faith. Keep Jesus at the center, and the Lord will strengthen, grow, and prosper this congregation. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your provision in our lives. You are the one who meets all of our needs through the glorious riches of grace that are found in Christ Jesus. We praise you for what you are doing in this time and this place through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.